The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, The Generals, historian Winston Groom tells the intertwined and uniquely American tales of George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, and George Marshall, from the World War I battle that shaped them to their greatest victory, leading the Allies to victory in World War II. These three remarkable men of arms who rose from the gruesome hell of the First World War to become the finest generals of their generation during World War II redefined America's ideas of military leadership, brought forth a new generation of American soldier. Their efforts revealed to the world the grit and determination that would become synonymous with America in the post-war years. My guest for the hour today is Winston Groom. He's author of uh, several previous books, including Forrest Gump, The Aviators, Conversations with the Enemy. That one was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. 1942, The Year That Tried Men's Souls, Vicksburg, 1863, and Shiloh, 1862. He served in Vietnam as an officer with the 4th Infantry Division. He lives in Point Clear, Alabama. And we reach him uh, by telephone. Winston Groom, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so we're coming up on, on Veterans Day. Your book is uh, is released, I believe, today by National Geographic. Um, I wonder, what uh, do you have any Veterans Day rituals that you do or memories? I don't know that. I'm in New York City right now. I'm looking at on Fifth Avenue, and the, the radio just said he think it's going to rain on Veterans Day. Okay. All right. So there'll be parades and such, uh, but uh, I guess uh, soldiers can soldier through the rain. Um, That's right. So you you grew up in Alabama. I think you still live there. I did. I, well, yeah. I, uh, I was raised in, in Mobile, Alabama, which is on the coast, and uh, I live across the bay from Mobile on Mobile Bay. I lived in New York for 10 years, lived in Washington for 10 years, so I've sort of been around, but uh, I call Alabama home. And uh, you you went to military school, I believe. I did. I went, well, it was a boys' military school. Okay. I went to college at the University of Alabama, but uh, I, I grew up in a, in a boys' military school, which is, you know, that, 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 that's not military anymore, it's not just boys, but it's been around for a hundred and something years, and it's, it's still going strong. And then uh, it, in the Vietnam War, uh, you were were you in Vietnam? I was. Mm-hmm. I was. I, well, as I'd gone into ROTC at college, and there wasn't any war. But by the time I graduated, there was. And we all, most of us in that class, went over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wrote a you wrote a novel about about the war, uh, Better Times Than These. I did Better Times Than These. That was my first book. Uh, well received, I think. It was. It yeah. was. Uh, by the way, by the way, looping Put me on the course of being a writer, a novelist. Right. In fact, you worked for a newspaper, and I, I believe you said, "I'm, I'm quitting. I'm, I'm going to do this." <laughs> yeah. Well, Burn, burned your bridges. I yeah. I, I I couldn't very well. I think if you'd, you know, failed at it, you wouldn't want to go back. And I. I sort of noticed that if if you looked into the drawers of a lot of uh, desks of those some of those older journalists, you would find three things. You'd find a pack of Lucky Strikes or something similar, or you'd find a bottle of Seagram's VO, and you'd find an unfinished novel <laughs> manuscript. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... I thought, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to just do this. And uh, mm-hmm. I, Washington was not the town to, um, I think... 
write novels. It's a political town. Mm-hmm. And so I decided I'm going to change my my whole game here, and I moved to New York. And uh sat down and wrote the book, and, and there I go. And uh, I'm not sure in what sequence, and then, then comes uh, Forrest Gump. Where did that idea come from? That was another oh, four or five books later, I guess. Uh, I, you know, it's really, I'll I tell you where ideas come from, it, because it's, it's, it's not like, oh, here's a fellow I know, he's Forrest Gump. But I was going back from New York in the wintertime home to visit my father, who was getting quite old then. He was born in 1906, and he was telling one day at lunch a reminiscence about a young boy in his neighborhood who um, was what they then called retarded, and the other kids would tease him and chase him and throw sticks at him and so on. And at some point, his young boy's mother bought a piano, and within a few days, this gorgeous piano music came wafting out of this house, and the other kids thought that was neat, and so they took him under their wing and I went back to that evening and I thought you know I I want to make some notes about that story because I remember that uh, CBS 60 Minutes has just done a thing on uh, the idiot savant syndrome where you have a person who basically can't tie their own shoes but they can do complex mathematical and musical things and so by, I was going to use it as a scene, in a, in a, maybe in some book later. And by late that night, I had finished the first chapter of Forrest Gump. And, That's the way these things happen. And I, I guess you couldn't have known what, an, what a hit it would be. What, and it's still, in fact, I, today I was just tooling around the Internet, found this from Huffington Post. Um, it's uh, Lessons We Can Learn from Forrest Gump on Death and Dying. Well, that, that's just from 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 yesterday. It's 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 become a touchstone, an icon. It's pretty iconic. Uh, it's, it's it's interesting. No, of course you couldn't know. I didn't. When I finished the book, I I, I thought I, I, maybe I was crazy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't even show it to my literary agent. Uh, uh-huh. I called up a friend, Willie Morris, who was a very fine editor and writer. And he was at that point the writer in residence at the University of Mississippi, and I asked him if he'd read it, and he said. Certainly, and so about two weeks later, I got a phone call at about 2 o'clock in the morning, which is Willie's uh, chosen time to talk, usually, and all he said was, don't change a word. Hmm. Now, did you, there it went. Did you set out to have Forrest Gump, and, and, and the the name has become a, you know, a, 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 I guess a touchstone. Uh, you know, the Forrest Gump of this or that, meaning someone who's ubiquitous throughout uh, periods of, in, in history. Did you did you set out to try to do a sweep of history with, with this character? I didn't know what I was going to do. And that's the truth. I, I mean, I, I didn't have a, a net, so to speak. I didn't have an outline. I didn't have notes. I didn't have research. I just sat down and said, well, what's going to happen today? I, it, it, was, it was completely unplowed ground as far as I was concerned. And... Um, so, I mean, I didn't know. I, I just would let my mind say what he's going to do. I, I say I, I think it came from what I call my lizard brain. We all have a lizard brain in the back of our neck. And it went right through the regular brain, under the ten fingers, under the, you know, the machine. And out it came, and I'd look at it, and I'd say, well, that's not bad. 
I don't think I was never really sure about it until uh, Willie said that, and then I gave it to my agent, and he loved it, and and the movies bought it, and that was it. That, that's history. What you What you think of the job uh, Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks did? And then the film. Oh, God, it's a billion-dollar show. You can't complain about yeah, that. <laughs> that's right. Academy Awards and everything, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I saw another interview. This is very interesting to me. You you, uh, you talked with Gregory Peck, who I guess uh, knows his way around Alabama. Um, and he, he said to you, uh, speaking about Forrest Gump, he says, we don't have heroes anymore. We have anti-heroes. And he, and he pointed out Forrest Gump as, as, I guess, a hero. Well, I'll tell you what he said. I have a, a little newspaper clipping in my... This little case I got in front of me on the desk, and he says, uh, see, they asked him, how are today's leading men different from those of an earlier age? And Gregory Pett says, well, nowadays our heroes on the screen are not strong, steadfast, courageous, and reliable. They're morally ambivalent, said Peck. The only hero we've had on the screen lately who represented all those virtues is Forrest Gump. And he was a little bit retarded. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's more true to life. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a part of the uh, the response to Forrest Gump is the fact that he's retarded, or you know, he's uh, he he kind of he's an innocent, at the very least. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. somebody to sort of bounce things off of. Yeah, in a world seen through the eyes of somebody who's. who's who is, is looking at things from about 15 degrees off. Mm-hmm. Did you have any pressure from your publisher for Forrest Gump 2 or for another novel? Or uh, I didn't get a lot of pressure, but they asked me if I was interested in doing one, and I did one. Mm-hmm. It's called Gump and Company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it came out and sold a lot of books. Uh, it's mo- more about Little Forrest than it is you know, Forrest Gump. Right, right. Once you get a good character, you want to... You want to explore it. Uh, you've said in other places as well that uh, you know novelists have one, maybe two, maybe three good novels. Is 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 that why you went on to nonfiction? Yeah, uh, and of course there are exceptions to that. Of course, Dickens comes to mind and other people. But I just uh, what what happens? I think, at least in my experience, is looking at friends of mine who uh, write, and you know you're you're. You're lucky if you have one good book, and you're extremely fortunate to have two or three. But, you know, if you don't know what else to do, you keep on writing uh, fiction, and then the, the critics get after you, and then uh, you get down on yourself, and you some of them wind up like, you know, uh, Fitzgerald and Thomas Wolfe drinking themselves to death, or, or Hemingway blew his brains out. And that was not exactly a path that I wanted to go down. No, no. And I thought, well, you know, I... I, I, I the problem with novels is the idea part of it. Writing it is not that hard, but uh, if you don't have a really good idea, but you still got to write, that that's a recipe I think for trouble. And I thought, well, you know, uh, because you know, you start with a novel, you start with a blank piece of paper, but with history, you've got a beginning, middle, and end, and it's just a question of putting it all together right. And I'd always wanted to do a history, and I. Talked to one of my publishers about it, and he said, "Sure." So I did, and that was uh, it was a trials of glory, and that uh, it did well. And so I was I, I was on that path, and I, I just I've liked it. I mean, I've uh, I mean I enjoy every minute of it. It beats work. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, get into talking about the generals. And we're talking specifically in Winston Groom's new book about George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, and George Marshall. And uh, they shared a World War I battle. In fact, uh, MacArthur and Patton uh, were uh, dodging uh, fire as they, as they conversed during, during one World War I battle. Uh, parallel lives intertwined a lot, and of course, uh, they were prominent in World War II. Talk about it following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting interactive green shows, play discussions, and other educational activities before and after the plays. Information at bard.org. This is State of the Arts. Utah has a strong theatrical tradition. The first major building in Salt Lake City was a theater. St. George built the Electric. Gunnison built the Casino Star. Park City and Ogden built Egyptian theaters. So when industrialist George Thatcher planned the first grand building in downtown Logan in 1890, of course he built a bank with a theater above it. The Thatcher Opera House reigned for 24 years before it was destroyed by fire in 1912. The journal reported the worst fire in Cache Valley history on the front page, several pages later reporting the sinking of the Titanic. The loss inspired construction of the Kane Lyric, Ellen Eccles, and Utah Theaters, three historic theaters on one block. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, managing the historic Ellen Eccles Theater and Thatcher Young Mansion. When this piece premiered in 1894, one critic said it was ruthless but innocent, like a child playing with dynamite. The dangerously fun Symphony No. 1 by Carl Nielsen. We'll hear it from a concert at the Aspen Music Festival. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're very pleased to have uh, historian Winston Groom with us. His new book is The Generals and tells the intertwined and uniquely American tales of George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, and George Marshall. Winston Groom is author previously of Forrest Gump, The Aviators, 1942, The Year That Tried Men's Souls, Vicksburg, 1863, Shiloh, 1862, and he joins me from New York City. Uh, so, Winston Groom, uh, why why these three um, men? Well, I, I had when I wrote The Aviators, that was, of course, Charles Lindbergh and Eddie Rickenbacker and Jimmy Doolittle, uh, who were the, the most prominent aviators of the 20th century. Uh, I thought I was on to something. That book was pretty successful, and so um, I was casting around for what to do next and thought, you know, I'd love to do something on Patton and I'd love to do something on MacArthur. I didn't want to do necessarily a full biography with, you know, you have to explore all the offices. And um, I thought, uh, Eisenhower, and I thought, nah. I, I need three people, but I love MacArthur in the Pacific and Patton in Europe and George Marshall in between trying to keep both of them from imploding. They, they were both very difficult guys. 
and probably a lesser chief of staff would have fired them. Uh, but Marshall was smart enough to realize that they were winners, and he wanted to keep them in the war, and it was a good thing. And there, I think what we have, we have little snippets. You know, once you become an icon, they're, they're you know, sort of these stereotypes. So with with MacArthur, I shall return. Uh, the fact he was fired by Truman. Um, Patton you know, slapped the soldier. You know, for example, we have these little tidbits. Uh, the men, of course, are fuller than that. Marshall, I don't know if we, in popular conception, if we even think about George Marshall. No, he's sort of faded, uh, but in his time, he was probably the best-known soldier in the the American Army. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, of course, he was present as well uh, in Washington. The Washington Press Corps was there. But uh, then he became uh, Secretary of State, and then he became the Secretary of Defense, and he was, of course, the Marshall Plan in Europe was his... uh, baby, and he was uh, quite well known in his day, but he's, because he wasn't a fighting soldier, he's, his memory has faded somewhat. Well, these, these, he's a heck of an administrator. These staff uh, generals are, you know, invaluable, right? And that's in Patton, or, or Marshall epitomizes this. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, 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 uh, war is all planning, especially these days. I mean, it, it's not you know you don't just go out with an army and fight somebody. It's it's a huge logistics and getting the right people in the right place and getting the right people to start with and knowing the right people, being able to to pass on all these things and, and my gosh, in World War II that was a, 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 an awfully demanding job with two huge battlefronts going on at the same time in North Africa and Pacific and <clears throat> Pacific and Europe. Uh, that was a You write in your preface, so I'll just read this paragraph. Uh, as we'll see in the following pages, you write, Peacetime is not always kind to generals. They do not necessarily do well outside their task of generaling. And here's the key sentence. Perhaps that's because during war, they become as close to gods on earth as we are ever likely to see. Gods on earth, why do you use that phrase? Uh, well, it, in their time, these these men were. I mean, we were at war, and that was a serious thing in this country, because we've been at war now for 20 years. Nobody really cares much about it. There's little brush fire wars that Orwell talked about, but we were in true danger in World War II. Uh, we could have lost that war in 1942. And um, the, the, the press makes the, the, the generals into the gods. Uh, if you read the old press clippings uh, and, and the, the newsreels, um, they were close to propaganda, and uh, they portrayed these these generals as, as much larger than life. I don't like that expression, but uh, they they were they were really worshipped. I mean, you remember uh, they came back when MacArthur came back. He was given an enormous ticket tape parade in, in South Manhattan, and uh, Patton the same, and. Uh, they, they, when they spoke, they would get two or three hundred thousand people there. They, they were uh, very, very, um, uh, nearly worshipped mm. and it, as, it, as great heroes. And in our times, where I think it's more cynical times, you you know, you maybe don't get as much of that. Well, I, I'm afraid you're probably right, and 
I sure don't want a World War Three to try to prove it. Right, right. Yeah, but, yeah uh, that's I, true. Yeah. I don't think we, we have generals. I mean, uh, what's his name? It was uh, Schwarzkopf. He he was very very popular. But I don't believe that he was received the same kind of awe as uh, a MacArthur or a Patton or even a George Marshall at, at what he did. Uh, but you know, they, they, we, we have, the wars are different these days. Uh, thank God. Yeah. Now, General, at least at least MacArthur, I believe, was was quite good at his own press, quite good at you know his, at his own PR. He had a flair for the dramatic. And, uh... Well, he not only had that, but he had he took the, the the press that they sent over there and practically including them in his army. I mean, <laughs> he gave them everything, and and he expected them to toe the party line, and they did. Um, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But the, you know, the the press. They, uh, they, the way that, that the military worked in those times, because secrecy was was, was very very important, uh, and so the reporters were assigned to a particular army, <clears throat> and when they got to the army, the uh, the army assigned them, or somebody the press division of the army would assign them to particular units wherever they wanted to go, if it was possible, but. You know, now they don't do that, um, although I think they did embed some reporters in one of those Gulf Wars. But, uh, you know, if you would cover the military uh, today or any time the way a newspaper normally functions, I think that you would have a, an enormous conflict because there's things that the military wishes to keep secret, and all those, those things, same things are the things the press wishes to let the public know, and I think the situation would be unworkable. And, and in fact, embedded has become a phrase that is used pejoratively in some some cases nowadays. Yeah, uh, I'm not really familiar with the the inner workings of the modern army. I mean, I know you know a little bit something about it, but um, I think there it's all about control. It's about trying to control the the flow of information. I'd like to, to go back, have you uh, treat each of these men briefly, their background. It, it, you point out in the book, these are 19th century men. They're, they were born, you know, and lived uh, quite a long time in the, in the 19th century. Um, so maybe George Marshall first. Uh, interestingly, I learned from this book, his father made a fortune, lost a fortune. Uh, he went, I believe, to VMI, Virginia Military yeah, Institute. Yeah, he did. He did. I, I think, really, if you look at Marshall, he spent, I don't know if he, Consciously, did it, but he seemed to be trying to atone for his father's failure somehow by being the most competent person uh, in, his, in, in every one of his endeavors. Um, and he was, in fact, you know, at top of his class and so on. And he, he, he was very, very competent. Uh, he always wanted to be a fighting soldier, and they never would let him because he was so good at organizing. In fact, there's a. And MacArthur, uh, of course, he, he, you know, it's hard to believe that, but he. He grew up on on these far out western military posts where they were still fighting Indians, and he distinctly remembers flaming arrows coming up with the walls of the fort. His father was a great general, as a uh, Medal of Honor winner in the first war. I mean, in the uh, Civil War, MacArthur's father, and later went on to become a uh, top general in the army. Uh, that's got to be hard to live up to. It was there. Was that part of his ambition? A Medal of Honor. Recipient for a father? 
I believe so. I, I, he never, nobody ever said it of him, and nobody ever, he never said it of himself. But he, of course, won the Medal of Honor. He was given the Medal of Honor under difficult circumstances because he was ordered by President Roosevelt to leave his army in the Philippines and go to Australia and take over the command of the entire Southwest Pacific. But the fear was that uh, people would accuse him of, of deserting the sinking ship because everybody knew that army was doomed. And so the president got the bright idea to give him the Medal of Honor uh, for his activities in the Philippines. And sort of allay that, that thought that he might have been uh, <clears throat> you know, leaving the troops of uh, some active cowardice or something. Mm-hmm. And I believe he still right. received some criticism for He received for that, yeah. it. You know, they, they all received criticism. Um, and I include it in the story, but, uh, you know, I, I, w- w- when you look at it as a whole, it was a brilliant idea to leave MacArthur there. He, he was highly competent to do what he did. I don't know if there was another general who could have done that, even though his behavior was sometimes bizarre uh, and certainly was, was uh, uh, toward uh, Washington, was um, almost... Uh, uh, Insubordinate, but I think that he 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 sensed that the people in Washington were not giving him the tools to do his job, and he was, in fact, correct. Uh, what he didn't know was that President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill <clears throat> had agreed to a, what they call the Germany First policy in that war, meaning they were going to send whatever they needed to do the tools that they needed to to beat the Germans in Europe, uh, and the Pacific was going to have to take the, the hindmost, uh, well, you know, whatever was left. And it infuriated MacArthur because he, because he wasn't privy to that. They, they wouldn't they didn't tell him about that policy, which he would not have liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of politics there. Um, I wonder, you, you've been quoted elsewhere as saying that the man from this book that you'd most like to sit down and have a beer with, if you could, was, was Patton. Well, he's an interesting guy. He's, he was half crazy, I think. Uh, you know, he was dyslexic. And he learned to overcome it, come it by memorizing. Uh, he would memorize all of the, the math problems and uh, essays and whatever he had to do. Uh, the only way he knew how to do it was by simply repeating what he could see. He, he, his, his reasoning powers weren't that good, but he was very funny about it, too. He said one time he was giving a, a speech to his troops, and it was sort of well known that he, his spelling was bad, and sometimes his grammar was bad. But he he said, well, you know, he said, anybody can spell a, a word the same way every time. He said, it takes imagination to, like <laughs> me, I spell it four or five different ways. <laughs> uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about his background. Well, he, he, he was the richest man in the Army to begin with. Um and he was he was extremely driven. I'm not sure what drove him. His father went to VMI, and his grandfather had been a, a Confederate general who was killed. But from the time he was a small boy, he wanted to be a general in the Army. It's all he wanted. And it was very difficult for him to get the appointment, um, but he managed to get it. He, had, he went to VMI for a year, as a sort of a prep school for West Point. And he got to West Point. He, he, he strived very 
uh, well um, and competed very well. Um, he, in fact, after the after he graduated, he was the uh, in the Olympics. Uh, they had had in the nineteen, I believe it was nineteen twelve Olympics. They uh, uh, instituted a, a new sport called the. Uh, we saw it the uh, decath- not the decathlon, the was it pentathlon. I can't remember, but whatever it was, it was the ancient Greeks used it, and it was a military uh, game almost, in which in, in the Greek version that these soldiers would you know, would fight it out and kill each other. But they didn't do that in the modern Olympics. They uh, it was designed to to see how well a courier would do if he had to to ride and shoot and swim and sword fight. And uh, uh, run, uh, and so uh, I think there were 40 participants in this. It was held in Stockholm, and Patton came out number eight out of all of those things. But he had learned all these things. He learned to, to uh, fencing at West Point, and he learned to swim because his family owned Catalina Island, among other things. And he'd swim around the island. And he was an excellent rider. He was a uh, the, the, uh, captain of the Army's polo team. And in West Point, he had also run track, so he was, he was pretty fit for all that. Hmm. Uh, he was beaten out by a Swede, I believe, who became his best friend. I think he, it, was, he was an interesting guy. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that uh, I think some people at least know about him, and you treat this a bit in the book, uh, Patton believed in reincarnation. Yeah, he did. He did. He, he, he was pretty convincing about it, too. In you know, traveling around Europe, he would sniff out these various uh, sites of old ancient battlefields of the Romans. Uh, when, uh, and uh, he, he would tell his wife that he had he'd been there. He had fought there. Uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know. He, but he certainly believed it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't seem to press it on people. I mean, you know, sometimes people look at you like you're a nut, say things like that. He, he just say, casually say it and move on to something else. Now you said earlier, and I think this is part of the uh, our sort of stereotype of Patton, a little bit crazy? Well, it has been explained in uh, other books on him, observations that this this dyslexia produces a a different kind of personality, Um, sort of uh, aggressive, um, defensive, uh, that sort of thing. And he, he was certainly aggressive, uh, he could be defensive. Uh, he could be outrageous, but he was basically a gentleman, and was raised as such. And you know, he he would show up at these army posts in the 1920s and 30s, uh, on a, you know as a lieutenant with a yacht and a string of polo ponies. And you would think that people would would have uh, been jealous of him for that, but they they weren't. They got to know him because he was an excellent rider and he was an excellent yachtsman. And uh, he, 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 could, he could back all that stuff up. It was, he, he, was, he was one of those guys that I, I found him the sort of the most interesting, although I'm sure MacArthur, they said he could speak eloquently on any subject on earth. And he, he <laughs> I may, may have a beer with Patton and a glass of wine with MacArthur. <laughs> Maybe I should have written that. Yeah, you're right. Right, the both of them. Um, Patton. I've heard the criticism of Patton. Uh, maybe have you respond to this, having studied him? 
that uh, that he was a little too loose with these men and uh, men's lives. In other words, uh, you know, too willing to burn through lives. This is a gen- this is a criticism I think some generals get. What do you think about it with Patton? Well, he, you know, that that when you look at the serious generals we've had, and we haven't had that many. I mean, you look back. You have to look back to the Civil War. And you have to look back to say the Spanish-American War. Roosevelt and his Rough Riders going up San Juan Hill. General Grant, and they call Grant a butcher. But the theory, and I think Sherman expressed it as well, is that the quicker we can get this thing over with, the more lives we're going to save. And if we have to expend lives now, uh, it will it will save a lot of lives in the future. If, if war continues for another year, two years, uh, you know, you, you're going to have a lot of people killed. That was the rationale. That, that I mean, the, the point was to win it, not to to save lives. You, I mean, obviously, you, you want to save lives, and you don't want to do these crazy frontal assaults anymore against uh, automatic weapons and uh, th- that that kind of stuff. What you want to do is is, is use use the kind of tactics that are going to win it. You know, lives are going to be lost if you're a general. I mean, hell, you know lives are going to be lost if you're a lieutenant. But the general has a lot more responsibility. But I think the theory uh, uh, that they put into practice was the same theory that Grant used, which was, uh, you know, it's going to be rough, but this is the best, quickest way to end it. Mm. Uh, Let's take another break when we come back. And I think that war in Europe, I must say, would probably have gone on another year, adolescent men, than and uh, Patton been uh, with the Third Army. Oh, really? It could, it could uh, well have. What, what, why? Uh, why so? What? What? What did he do? Well, right I think Patton position? just drove his people. I mean, the other generals, Montgomery was he, he? He was sitting up there in the north, doing practically nothing, and at the same time, Patton was being held back. He was the one responsible for breaking out of Normandy, and he reached the. The Seine, and then he you know, reached the Rhine, and they had to stop him. Uh, basically, politics. Mm-hmm. He, he was the a British wanted to, to to be in on it. He was a fervent anti-communist, right? And, and, and famously, he he was he was chomping the bit. He, I think, he thought, "Well, we're going to have to fight the Soviets sooner or later." Well, he, he was certainly prescient about it. Um, I don't know what would have happened, uh, but he said to people that he certainly had the army they could do it right then mm. he said i'll be in moscow in a week if you want me to right <laughs> i don't know whether he could have or not but uh you know certainly the russians um carved up their you know all of eastern europe and as much of western europe as they, as they could and that's what Patton had predicted they were going to do yeah and who knows what would have happened but uh he he certainly he was prescient in in that uh, that respect Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, go back to World War One. Uh, these three generals, not generals at the time, uh, were involved in a specific battle, and uh, World War One uh, certainly had an effect on the the three who who would become famous and critical to success in World War Two. Uh, more with Winston Groom. His book is The Generals. It's being released today by National Geographic. More following the break. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater presents Showboat, a story of a family of performers living on a riverboat, their struggles with gambling, race, and personal secrets. Details at utahfestival.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. We'll be in Cleveland, Ohio for the Republican convention as our election road trip continues. Donald Trump is poised to accept the nomination in a key November battleground. This is something that's continuous, so since it's been true for the last 50 years, it's going to be true again. The RNC begins in Ohio next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, The Generals, historian Winston Groom tells the intertwined and uniquely American tales of George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, and George Marshall. The World War I battle that shaped them to their greatest victory, leading the Allies to victory in World War II. Winston Groom is author of uh, several books, including Forrest Gump, The Aviators, and 1942, The Year That Tried Men's Souls. He was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Conversations with the Enemy. You're welcome to join the conversation here if you would like. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So, Winston Groom, you... Uh, you, uh, for several chapters, describe uh, these three gentlemen's adventures, you could call it that, or experiences in World War One. In fact, there's a couple of scenes in the book where uh, Patton and MacArthur, under fire, are, are conversing. They, they actually met each other on the, on the battlefield. They did. <laughs> uh, this was the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne, which was... It still is uh, the most costly single battle, I think, that this country's ever fought. We had 26,000 men killed in it. Um, and the, the, the final push against, against the Germans and, uh, and, and, and eastern France and northeastern France. And uh, Patton had become involved in tanks. This was, of course, a new weapon. And um, he was, in fact, the commander of the American Tank Corps. He was a colonel. MacArthur, at that point, was a general. And they made a push, and at some point there on the battlefield, MacArthur found himself uh, with Patton standing there in a conversation. All the men around him were lying down in the uh, foxholes or whatever protection they could find. And there was a rolling barrage coming toward them. They could see it. And they stood there and continued their conversation. As Patton put it later to his wife, he thought that, that both of them wanted to get down, but neither one of them wanted to be the first one to do it. <laughs> there is a sense of bravado, isn't there? Uh, it, you oh, know, yeah. Generals, of course, in ancient times, and in the preface, you start your book with Alexander the Great. Generals, of course, would be at the front fighting with their men, but as it became so complex, and generals are more to the rear, but, the, but these two men, MacArthur and Patton, certainly wanted to show bravado. Well, Patton in particular, I, I mean, MacArthur, it's hard to figure him out, but he seemed to be completely oblivious to enemy fire. Uh, Patton, on the other hand, was, was scared that he was going to be, uh, become a coward, 
and he kept trying to prove himself, which is in some sometimes I when I was going through um, the research material, I would say, well, why would somebody do that? That's nuts. But he he did because he wanted to prove himself, and uh, probably MacArthur did too. But he just for some reason seemed very casual about it. Mm. And it's, it's it's interesting how people react in those circumstances. I wonder if we could return to George Marshall, and he, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometimes because he wasn't on the battlefield. He wanted to, of course, but he was just so valuable. Roosevelt, uh, what, what did he say, he was worth the division, or you know, he, was, he was invaluable to, to Roosevelt. Uh, tell me a little bit yeah, b- well, more about could, George Marshall. He, he, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, tell me a little more about George Marshall. Well, he could have become the commander of uh, the uh, invasion of Europe, the job that he gave Eisenhower. Uh, he bet, he very much wanted to. But that would have at last given him the opportunity to command troops in battle, large troops. And Roosevelt asked him. He didn't order him not to. He simply asked him. Um, he said, I'd, "I'd rather have you here, but essentially the decision is up to you." And he was a pretty selfless guy, Marshall. And he he gave up that last great opportunity. Um, he, he was. He, I mean, he had a temper, and he he could certainly be forceful. But he was essentially a sort of a nice guy, and that's the way he got along with people. It's also the way I believe after the war, when I mentioned that some soldiers don't do well, uh, you know, professional military people uh, if, after the war, he he did not do particularly well. I think part of his problem was. When he was secretary, of, well, he, he, they sent him to China to try to straighten out the uh, conflicts between Mao Zedong and uh, Chiang Kai-shek, um, Mao Zedong being the communist. And he'd been used to dealing with the Russians, and he knew they were difficult to deal with, but they were friends. And he thought that the Chinese communists were going to be his friends. And in fact, they were not his friend at all. And uh, so the result was he accomplished nothing. And the same thing... Uh, happened when he was a Secretary of State. He he seemed to think he could deal with the Russians, and he he seemed it, it, it was his belief that you know he was going to put the soldier part aside, and um, we're going to be a compromise uh, uh, part that the, a Secretary of State who should always be for peace, and so he really did not do well in his negotiating with the Soviet communists uh, nor the Chinese communists. Mm. Or any communist for that matter. Uh, so in that way, I, I think he was he he was a little off balance when he put down his soldier hat and put on the other hat. Now you said before. I wonder if you could expand on this. Said part of his headache was dealing with generals like MacArthur and Patton. And well, he, sure, it was. And he did it very well. Yeah, I mean, he he recognized that they were they were. Uh, well, I, yeah, I was going to say indispensable, but nobody's indispensable. But they, MacArthur gave him headaches. He he would read statements that MacArthur made about that gang in Washington, of course, meant him. Uh, it was not providing the, the materials. And, you know, it was true. Some of these guys, I mean, it, it was very difficult out there. The, the, the airplanes, uh, you know, the, the parts wouldn't show up, and the planes wouldn't show up, and they couldn't get the proper shipping, and they couldn't get the, the ammunition, and that's all very frustrating for a commander uh, when he's got a job to do and he's trying to do it. Uh, but 
you know, the, it, it, probably anyone but MacArthur would not have survived those remarks that he were printed in the press about the, uh, let's say, the gang in Washington. Mm. Um, but the, the Marshall didn't have anybody to replace him with. Yeah. And the same is true with Patton. I mean, Patton was a leader. He was a fighter. He won every every battle he he was in, and it would be very difficult to replace him. Eisenhower wanted to replace him, in fact. Uh, and Eisenhower consulted Marshall. That was after the uh, the, the slapping incident, and mm-hmm. um, Marshall said no. Mm-hmm. By the way, what do you make of the slapping incident? It's, you know, it's one of the bullet points when you you know when you think about Patton. Yeah, well, I think that in a lot of it has to do with that movie because you know people, very few people now remember the uh, lived in those days, and um, but it was it was reported, uh, you know, in the newspapers, uh, and it, it was a, a, an act of incredible impetuosity and stupidity. Uh, but Patton did not believe in what. They then call combat fatigue. I, I think now it's something disorder. I don't know. But whatever it was, he went to a military hospital, and there were soldiers all shot up in uh, every, every different way. And then there's one soldier who was sitting down on the bed, and uh, Patton asked him what was wrong with him, and he said he can't take it anymore. And Patton just went crazy, and he started bawling him out. And he, at some point, he slapped him. And he said later that he was trying to restore his manhood, but um, unfortunately for Patton, the, the, after the, the incident, the, some of the doctors got uh, reported this, and actually Eisenhower sat on it. Um, and then I think Drew Pearson uh, got wind of it and reported it in the press, and all the other press started doing it. It was a big... Huge outcry, hue and cry about it, and that's really what got what got uh, Eisenhower angry. Hmm. Uh, but in any case, they did nothing about it. And you know, you you bring up the movie that sometimes happens, doesn't it? We we didn't live through the history. We maybe haven't read about it. We think of George C. Scott and Gregory Peck. That's what we think about. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I do. Mm-hmm. I keep. But I, of course, as I went along in the research, I got to look at the photographs of actual actual photographs of Patton McCarthy and Marshall, you know, so often that I quit doing that. But that was my first, uh, uh, you know, visual image of them was was uh, from the movies, and the movies were remarkably accurate. Um, I didn't see any any sort of storytelling or launching off in, into anything either. Either one of those, I, they they followed pretty much the the. Uh, facts as I, as I found them. Just have about a minute left, and we've talked about a bit about Marshall's post-war years, had some difficulties that the generals sometimes run into. Uh, Patton died very soon after the war, I think, right? And he's he's in a car accident, or aftermath yeah. of a car accident. He's buried in, in Luxembourg. Um, what about uh, MacArthur? He came came home, made well, the famous a, speech. He had a long career, very, very successfully rehabilitated Japan for four or five years after the war, and uh, he changed it. This was a very difficult thing to do because their culture was such 
you know, they were led by an emperor, and there was no democracy, and women were treated poorly, and so on. He, he uh, reversed all of that and gave them a democracy and uh, put them back on the path to being a highly industrialized, uh, welcome member of Western civilization, or Eastern civilization. And uh, he had about accomplished his task when the Korean War broke out. The North Koreans attacked South Korea, the communists, and we had had agreed to protect South Korea. And he, at this point, had very little army left, but he took what he had up there and managed to stop the hemorrhaging and then pulled off a brilliant landing at uh, the port of Incheon, which is near Seoul, and uh, not only uh, stopped the hemorrhaging, but he chased the North Koreans back up beyond the 38th parallel. And he had a problem with President Truman, who was trying to negotiate the war uh, to uh, some conclusion. And MacArthur put out a, a public statement to the North, the Chinese communists who had, had joined in with the North Koreans that uh, uh, they, they needed to surrender him immediately or they would be destroyed. And that didn't do well for President Truman, so he fired General MacArthur who then came to New York City and lived in the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel for the rest of his life. He had a, had a real uh, flair for for speaking, and he, the famous speech, Old oh, Soldiers God, yeah, Never yeah. Die. You know, that's, that's just one of many examples of, from MacArthur. Yeah, when he came back uh, here, uh, it was not under a cloud of being fired. It was a great hero, because President Truman was not particularly popular, and... Uh, uh, MacArthur was asked to address both houses of Congress, uh, which he did, uh, a joint session, and made such a, an emotionally stirring speech that the Speaker of the House was heard to quip that uh, there was not a dry eye on the Democrat side or a dry seat on the Republican side. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, he I... then went on to make his famous West Point speech that was shortly before his death. And he, he, he was, he was a, a, a terrific orator. What do you make uh, now, having spent time with with these three? What do you did you were there any surprises? What do you come away with? Not really surprises. It just the, the richness of their lives. I think uh, impressed me, and, and things that I didn't know. I, when, when I do these books, I sort of deliberately choose a subject that I'm not particularly familiar with. Uh, I mean, not intimately familiar with. In any case, uh, I think it brings something to the writing. Because I I get excited about learning new things about the subject, and I think I can then convey that excitement to the reader. But uh, I don't think these guys were were amazing men. I mean, their their lives were surrounded with patriotism and courage and character, and they I think that they they were true true real American heroes. Hmm. Um, what's next for for you? Ah, oh, next. Would you believe the admirals? The admirals. Okay. Who? Yeah. Which ones? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to take the ones that everybody's done. Like Admiral King, who was chief of naval operations, Admiral Nimitz. I was going to do the fighting admirals, and that would be Halsey and Raymond Spruance, who you know, at the Battle of Midway, and. Uh, a guy nobody's heard, very few people heard of, Clifton Sprague. Um, 
they had at the Battle of Leyte Gulf, uh, the Halsey had gone off chasing some Japanese. He was decoyed off chasing Japanese carriers, and the entire Japanese surface fleet, including these enormous battleships that they had built, suddenly appeared. Uh, and Leyte is in the Philippines, it's an island. And uh, uh, MacArthur had just landed, and they were headed straight for the fleet. Uh, the, 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 all the all the, the transport ships, and then bombard the beaches, and would probably have destroyed the invasion. And Admiral Sprague, with his little band of, of escort carriers, uh, successfully beat these people back and sent them back to Japan. Mm. And that was, I mean, it was it, it was like a, uh, a high school football team playing the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Sounds... that much difference. I mean, in, in the weight yeah. of these. Three or four destroyers and destroyer escorts and little small escort carriers. Oh. But they, they somehow did it. I don't know to this day exactly how they did it. Well, it sounds interesting. But, Admirals be coming up next from Winston Groom. The current book is The Generals. It's out from National Geographic. Winston Groom, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. This week, Republicans will convene in Cleveland to nominate Donald Trump for president. NPR and PBS NewsHour will be there, too. We're teaming up to bring you live coverage each night. I'm Rachel Martin. Join me, Judy Woodruff, and Gwen Ifill for speeches, interviews, and analysis live from the Republican National Convention. Special coverage from PBS NewsHour and NPR News. Join us each evening at 6 o'clock through Thursday right here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.